this first Sunday of uh, 2014, I want us to consider Psalm 1. Psalm 1, if you'll turn there. A text which I think is appropriate for the beginning of a new year. This is a familiar passage, but it's uh, familiar to us because it's so good. And not only is it good, it's significant. Uh, Derek Kidner notes that it seems likely that this psalm was was specially composed as an introduction to the whole Psalter. It's a great, great psalm. Let me read it. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Let me suggest three things that I think God says to us in this wonderful little psalm. The first is this. God wants your mind. God wants your mind. You've often heard me speak about and pray for our young people who are off to college or out of the house to start a new life for themselves. I have a special concern for these young people for more than any of the rest of us. They are in a battle for their minds. These bright, young, impressionable minds are beginning to think independently without asking mom and dad. And as they begin to think independently, many voices fill their heads with ideas, some of which are radically opposed to everything they have ever believed. So what kind of thinking will they end up embracing? Who will win this battle for their minds? That's the issue this psalm, the battle for a battle faced not only by college students, though they are in the front lines of it, but a battle confronting every single one of us. For on the one hand, we get counsel from the wicked world around us, advice, ideas, philosophies that come at us. And on the other hand, we have the Torah, which means instruction or direction from the Lord. Now, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out that these are two competing systems of thought. And that's the battle line that's drawn before us in this text. God wants your mind. Let's talk a bit about the counsel of the wicked first. This counsel is not all gathered up in one book that we would be tempted to go check out of the library and read it and sample the counsel of the wicked No, it doesn't work that way. The counsel of the wicked is like the air we breathe. It comes in the well-meaning advice of our friends. It comes woven skillfully into textbooks and novels that we read. It comes from the reporter's perspective as we read or, or watch the news. It's communicated often very beautifully in the lyrics of popular music. And it is dramatized in lifelike images on a thousand movie screens. Oh, it would be much easier if it were confined to a book that we could read and analyze and refute. But it's not. Notice also that the counsel of the wicked that's presented here is like a slippery slope. 
Hebrew poetry is characterized by parallelisms. Well, here we have in verse 1, 3 parallelisms. We have walk, stand, sit. We have counsel, way, seat. We have wicked sinners, mockers. Three parallelisms. The Lord is vividly but poetically portraying to us the nature of the counsel of the wicked. It seeks to move us from our thinking to behaving to belonging. It quickly makes itself more comfortable in our lives. From walking alongside to standing and and, and talking to sitting down and belonging. It permeates our our lives. We we accept advice. We walk in the counsel of the wicked. And, and, And then we become party to its ways. We stand in the way of sinners. And soon we adopt its cynical attitudes. We sit in the seat of mockers. We don't have to talk about this hypothetically. We all have seen it played out in someone's life. A young person goes off to the university, listens to the advice of godless professors and peers, begins to enjoy the party, and graduates as a godless cynic, mocking the faith that he or she once loved. But it's not just university students in this battle. We all face this battle for our minds. We all listen to someone's advice, counsel, from where? We all fill our minds with ideas. Whose ideas? We all organize our thinking according to some philosophy of life. But whose philosophy? This morning I tell you, God wants your mind. So God has provided us with his own counsel, in contrast to the counsel of the wicked, his holy word. Here it's called God's law. But the word is Torah, which actually means instruction more than it means commandments. And unlike the counsel of the wicked, God has gathered his instruction in one book. 66 books in one holy book. Ultimately, it's a book about himself, for he is the wonderful counselor. And in this book, God reveals the priceless value of his counsel. His word is like a lamp unto our feet and a light into our path. His word is seed, which planted produces good crops. His word is a hammer which breaks the stony hearts. His word is a double-edged sword which can, can discern the difference in our motives and our intentions. His word is sweeter than honey. It's more precious than gold. It never fails. It never passes away. And so in verse 2, God calls us to delight in it, to delight in his instruction, to meditate on it day and night. The picture is, is of a cow chewing the cud, taking in the food and then chewing and chewing and chewing to digest it. So one writer notes that whatever shapes a man's thinking shapes his life, which is exactly what Proverbs says. As a man thinks in his heart, so he will be. You see, this is a battle for our minds. What do we delight in? What do we meditate on? What do we fill all the spaces of our minds with? What can we hardly wait to think about again? God wants that to be his Torah, his instruction, his word. He wants your mind. That's what God told Joshua of old. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. The New Testament makes a similar call when it calls us to be transformed by the renewing 
of our mind. God wants the attention, the activity, the allegiance of your mind. Later in this book of Psalms, in Psalm 119, that longest psalm, we hear uh, expressions of uh, what it's like to delight in God's Word. We are described, I have rejoiced in the testimonies, in thy testimonies, much as, as much as in all riches. Or again, my soul is consumed with longing for your laws at all times. Or again, I cleave to your testimonies. Or again, your statutes are the joy of my heart. Wow, those expressions of devotion sound a little embarrassing, don't they? We've so often kept God's instruction all locked up where it belongs on, for Sunday use only and only in the church house. But folks, there's no comfortable, semi-committed middle ground here. Either we are filling our minds with God, with the world's counsel, or we are filling our minds and hearts with God's instruction. And God makes it clear, he wants our minds. This isn't magic. It involves choices we make. Priorities, we said. Every day. You either pick up God's word and read it, or you don't. When you hear of Bible studies, you either pack up and go and attend and study, or you don't. When you drive down the road, you either fill your mind with God's word coming on a CD or something, or you fill your mind with something else. When you pick up up books and magazines to read, you either fight to nurture a Christian perspective, or you sit back and allow your mind to be manipulated. Every day in a dozen different ways, you either join the battle to devote your mind to Christ, to bring every thought captive to him, Or you just cave in and accept the counsel of this confused, hopeless, wicked world. But God's will in this manner is not obscure. He wants your mind. He calls you to delight in and meditate on his word day and night. Which brings us then to our second point. God blesses those who delight in him. God blesses those who delight in him. I want to be careful how we think on this second point. We live in a world, be, uh, a world uh, permeated by behaviorism. That is, that we learn to do things by getting rewards. Starts with just little tykes, getting M&Ms for being good. God doesn't play that game. He expects our obedience because he's the Lord, not because he's willing to pay us for it. And so, I do not want you to hear... Something like, if you do what God says, he will reward you with treats. That's, it's not that simple. At the same time, our actions and ideas and actions have consequences because God made it so. So if you jump off the building, you're going to hit the ground. God made it that way. If you plant corn in the spring, come fall, you're going to be picking corn, not beans. Actions have consequences. And it's in that vein of thought that this text says God blesses those who delight in him. It's just how it works. Actions yield consequences. We actually see three references to God's blessing here. God will bless those who delight in him. We see three kinds of blessing. 
First in verse 1, blessed is the man we read. You know, there's a different word, Hebrew word, that's commonly the word for blessed. The word used here is more properly translated happy. Happy is the man. That's what the queen of Sheba said when she came and visited King Solomon in ancient Israel. She said, how happy your men must be, how happy your officials who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Praise be to the Lord your God who has delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel. He has made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. This pagan queen had never dreamed there could be such a wonderful place. A land living under God's instruction, ruled by God's king. And folks, it's still true. Happy are the people who do not walk in the darkness of the counsel of the wicked, but who delight in and live according to God's instruction. Then in verse 3 we say a second promise of blessedness. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Here the poet uses a wonderful image of a fruitful tree. Now in the midst of all the rain in the winter, we forget how dry it can get in the summer, but we know, we know about that. It just stops raining, and the grass turns brown, and the flowers wilt, and your beautiful fruit trees, the leaves begin to curl, and the immature fruit begins to fall. It's not working. But meanwhile, I've noticed down alongside the creek, everything stays green. So we have to figure out a way to transport the creek up to our fruit trees. So is the person whose roots are sunk deep into God's word, drawing the nourishment that no man can give. In good times and in bad times, that person will be unwithered and fruitful. Oh, this does not mean that God's people never have problems. It only means that God's word is a source of stability and fruitfulness even in the midst of problems. We see examples of that in every human tragedy, whether it's 9-11 or Hurricane Katrina or the the Sandy Superstorm, wherever we have tragedies. In, In the midst of that, of people suffering, we always see some who clearly know the Lord, some who, who in time of great need are reaching out to reach up, meet others' needs. Some who in the face of hardship and hopelessness are singing praise to the Lord. Those people bear testimony to this truth that God blesses those who delight in him. They are sturdy, well-watered, fruitful trees even in the worst of situations. And then in verse 6 we have a third promise of blessing. The Lord watches over the way of the righteous. Actually, the blessing in view here is eternal life in contrast to the condemnation of the wicked. And what a blessing from God this is, that we would be forgiven by the Lord Jesus Christ who died to pay for our sin, that we would be raised with him to new life, that on judgment day we would be clothed with the righteousness of Jesus acceptable to God. But you see, you don't know this blessed salvation. You don't know that from reading the newspaper. 
You don't know that by watching football games, wonderful as they are. You don't discover that out hiking in the hills. You won't see that on any Oscar-winning movie. You know, pop singer is going to inform you of that. There is only one way for anyone to come to know God's blessedness, and that's by giving attention to God's instruction, his word. For God blesses, blesses those who delight to know him. Finally, one more truth from this psalm before we close. The wicked will come to nothing. The wicked will come to nothing. You know, in all my life, I've really only met a few people who claimed to hate God and not care a thing about God's Word. The truth is, most of us, most of us have wonderful intentions. But the power of sin is seen in the fact that we never get around to acting on things that we think maybe we ought to check out. Why not? Why don't people even follow the light that they have? Well, one reason is that the world is so enticing. People are having fun. They're making money. They're being successful. They're living in the fast lane. But meditating on God's word and walking in his ways, well, that seems so boring. And so God who is merciful and who knows us better than we know ourselves, as he calls us to the discipline of delighting in his law and promises us his blessedness, also pulls back the curtain and lets us see where that other lifestyle is headed. The wicked will come to nothing. In verse 4, God says the wicked are like chaff. Now the chaff appears to be part of the wheat for a long time. In fact, it's called wheat and treated like wheat. But then the threshing starts. This is not a modern picture of threshing with the giant combines rolling across the plains. Oh no, this is the picture, a picture of an ancient threshing floor where the grain is crushed under the threshing sledges and to break open its shell. And then it's tossed up into the breeze, and before the kernels of wheat can come down, the wind blows the chaff away, for it's nothing. And the wicked are like that, like the chaff. They amount to nothing. Now, it doesn't look that way today. I know it doesn't look that way. The truth is, it didn't look that way in David's day. In Psalm 73, we read this wonderful description about the way things tend to look right now. The wicked have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from the burdens common to man. They're not plagued by human ills. Their mouths lay claim to heaven. Their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up the waters in abundance. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? This is what the wicked are like. Always carefree, they increase in wealth. Ah, but God says, they're chaff. The wicked will come to nothing. And so in verse 5, their judgment is described in two ways. First, they will not stand. They will experience a complete loss of support. Everything the wicked hope for, hope in, will fall apart. Their financial security, their power, their, their political connections, human governments, philosophical systems, uh, popular acclaim, 
it will all come to nothing. And then the wicked will also be cut off from the assembly of the righteous. Right now, many of the wicked appear to be part of God's people. Everyone's fool. But God knows his own. And on judgment day, he will separate the true from the false. And even Christian friends will be unable to help them. For on that day, the truth will come to light as the wicked come to nothing. Every time we encounter great tragedy as a society, it seems that there's an outcry. Why didn't anyone see this coming and warn us? But in most every case, someone did see it coming and did sound the alarm that people were not listening. And so we're unprepared. Such tragedies should teach us to pay attention to this psalm. For here God outlines what really matters and where our choices will take us. Here we see clearly the importance of what goes on inside of us. For first of all, God wants our hearts and minds. For everything flows from that. And then we see the result. God blesses those who delight in him. He blesses uh, us because uh, we, we, those who delight in him are, the, are truly the happy ones. They, they, they survive. They flourish even in tough times. Their lives prove to be fruitful. But the wicked, they come to nothing. In spite of how things look today, in spite of the apparent success and wealth of the godless, in spite of the dazzling things of this world which demand our attention, in spite of the fact that God's people are regularly painted as losers, on the day when God forever separates these two competing ways of life, the wicked will come to nothing. So blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And one last word. Folks, may I suggest that only Jesus Christ actually fits that description of the man in Psalm 1. You see, you will never delight in the law of God enough to stand before God in judgment. Your only hope is to trust in Jesus, who alone is acceptable to the Father, who has paid for our sins and brings us with himself. Then he will transform you, conform you to himself through the renewing of your mind. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, dear Father, some of us know this psalm so well we could quote it. Since childhood, perhaps, we've been able to quote it. And yet, Father, none of us has finished this battle. The battle for our minds. The battle to walk in your ways. And to turn away from the way of the wicked. So help us. This year before us, Lord, help us. To not lose our bearings. Help us, Lord, to heed your warning. To, to, to take hold of your promises. Oh, Father, take our lives and transform us. Uh, for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.
Well, as I said at the beginning, we're going to, we're going to postpone the installation of new elders to our council, and so we'll just uh, close with a hymn. Hymn number 644, different than what's in your hymnal, six, I mean, than what's in your bulletin, 644. You who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. Amen. Peace, you're dismissed. <laughs>